Well, uh, we looked at the first half of 1 Corinthians at the end of last year, so we're continuing uh, from chapter 11. But uh, let's just do a quick recap on what the early part of the letter was about. Uh, so if you've got your Bibles open, it'd be great to do that. Uh, flip all the way back to chapter 1. Uh, you may remember God has given the Corinthian church all sorts of spiritual gifts. Uh, but the downside of that is it's made them proud and there's disunity. Uh, so look, for example, at chapter 1, verse 10. Uh, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, that, they, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Uh, they're disunited, uh, and we find out that it's about pride. Over in chapter 3, verse 3, uh, he's got some tough words for them. Chapter 3, verse 3, you're still worldly. For since there's jealousy and quarrelling among you, uh, you're not worldly. And then he goes on to talk about some of the symptoms that come from their pride. Uh, Like chapter 5, he talks about sexual immorality, uh, but they they won't discipline the sinner. Chapter 7 and 8, he answers a couple of questions that they've specifically asked him about. Chapter 7 is about marriage. Uh, You can see it says, Now about the matters you wrote about marriage and then the same thing at the start of chapter 8 they asked about uh, food sacrifice to idols. Chapters 9 and 10 uh, he talks about some practical details of what it means to live as a Christian in the midst of a city where there's idols everywhere. What's it actually look like to live as a Christian? And then at the end of chapter 10 uh, uh, he finishes with some general principles. So have a look at chapter 10 verse 31 and 32. Uh, he sums it all up, all of this practical teaching. So, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the Church of God. Uh, in other words, the big summary principle, whatever you do, do it with one eye on glorifying God and the other eye on how other people will be affected by what you do. Uh, sounds pretty similar to what are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbour as yourself. Uh, And that's sort of the first ten chapters. And then he gets to chapter 11. Uh, And through to the end of chapter 14, he applies those two principles, glorify God, uh, don't cause anyone to stumble, uh, to their church meetings. So 11 to 14 is all about their church meetings. Because that heart problem, their, their pride and their disunity, was showing itself in all sorts of Uh, problems in their church. This lack of love was making a mess of their church meetings. Uh, And that's what, that's sort of setting the scene for this this problem that we've got, this presenting problem. Uh, It seems strange to us. It's about women's fashion. Now, I'm no authority on women's fashion. Uh, Not many men I know are. I can't tell the difference between an A-line dress or a shift, between a queen and neckline. And a halter neckline. John's nodding, he knows all about that, I'm sure. Uh, Between pumps, wedges, or ballet flats. Yep, he's on top of that one. Now, now my guess is the Apostle Paul was no fashion expert either, but nevertheless, here in 1 Corinthians 11, he teaches with authority what women should wear in church. And it's far more important than what type of neckline or what type of shoes they wear. So have a look at verse 4, for example. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. 
And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It's just as though her head was shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. Or again in verse 10. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. Now there's lots there that you might want to say, hang on a minute, what's going on there? But at at its simplest, the presenting problem is that uh, some of the women in the Corinthian church were choosing to not cover their heads when they prayed or prophesied. Now that may not seem very important, but it's important because the reality is it was communicating something, something that went against God's created order. Now, the culture of our church today looks very different from Corinth, uh, and in lots of different cultures down through the ages, churches look very different to other churches. Uh, They dress differently, they have different practices and customs. But there are some things about church, whatever culture uh, it's part of, uh, there are some things about church that should transcend culture. Uh, The way we do things should reflect what God's character is about. It should reflect God's design. It should reflect God's word and reflect God's order. And the problem was the Corinthian church, in this particular thing, it wasn't doing that. Rather than reflecting God's order, uh, the Corinthian church looked more like the Corinthian city around about them than they did looking like God's holy people. Whatever the culture around looks like, the church should reflect God and his way of doing things, his order. It's a little bit like the foreign embassy buildings in Canberra. I don't know when you went on your primary school excursion to Canberra, did, did, whether you ever drove through the, um, the streets around that suburb of where, where the embassies are. What's the suburb? Is it, sorry? Yarralumla. Is it around? Like, yeah, Yarralumla. I think that's where the embassies are. But the thing about those buildings is Uh, They look a lot different from every other house that's in Canberra, don't they? Uh, They're nearly all built to look like the traditional buildings from the country of origin. The same sorts of gardens and plants and architecture. Uh, They represent the countries they're from, even though they're in Australia. Uh, But they don't just represent, they reflect. They reflect their country of origin. They're on show to the rest of Australia. Uh, They show what it's like to live in Thailand or America or China or whatever the the embassy is. And that's what the church is like. God's given us a similar job to represent uh, his kingdom, to reflect his order of things, whatever particular country our church is in. Uh, We're part of God's kingdom and we show that by the way we do things. And in this area of what women were wearing on their heads, the Corinthian church wasn't doing that. Uh, So let's go back to the beginning of the passage. Uh, Paul, as he often does, begins with theology, which is interesting, isn't it? Uh, The women's choice of headwear wasn't primarily a social problem. Uh, It wasn't primarily a fashion problem. It it was a theological problem. And so Paul begins with theological reasons for why women should wear a head covering. Before he gets to the practicalities, he begins with a bigger question of the way God's designed things. So have a look at God's order, God's priority, God's order of things in verse 3. I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, 
and the head of Christ is God. It seems like a funny way round of saying it. We might do it in a bit more linear way, but can you see the four steps? God the Father is the origin and the head over God the Son. And so what that means is the Son submits to the Father, the Son exists to honour the Father. Secondly, the Son is the origin or the head over every man. That's how God made uh, men. So Christian men offer their submission to Jesus. Thirdly, God created the husband and wife so that the, the husband is the head over the wife. That order in marriage goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. God created Adam first and Eve was made out of Adam. Adam is the source of Eve. Uh, head, of course, has got, has got two meanings. Head can mean sort of uh, leading, but head can also mean source or origin. And that first marriage sets the pattern for every marriage that follows after God, with husbands as the leader, wives who choose to offer their submission. Now you may be wondering why I've said husband and wife when the the Bible uh, in front of us. Most of you will probably have man and woman. The problem is Greek doesn't have different words for man and husband. It's the same word. Uh, And it's the same with woman and wife. There's, there's one word. So that one word could mean man or it could mean husband. And I think there are very good reasons in verse 3 why we should be thinking of husband and wife. The head of a wife is the husband. Notice how it's singular in each case. It's not saying the head of women are men. It's saying a woman uh, or a wife as a, man, a husband, her husband as her head. It's not talking about men in general or women in general. God's order is for marriage, uh, that wives submit to their husbands. Now, let's be honest, uh, that's a saying, that's a, a sentence that makes many of us feel uncomfortable. Uh, but a few things to, to notice. It's it's to reflect that submission that's offered uh, by a wife to a husband is to reflect the way Christ submits to the Father. Uh, What's the relationship between the Father and the Son? Jesus is not inferior to his Father. He's not less important than his Father. And yet he chooses to offer his submission. And that choice is a glorifying and an honouring choice that he makes. Uh, It doesn't minimise him or... Uh, make him less. In some ways it makes him more. Uh, And that's some things we can learn about what it means for a wife to offer submission to her husband. Uh, God's design is that they can choose that, uh, to offer it to their husband whose job is to lead as the head. Uh, One thing to notice is that it's only in the context of marriage that uh, an average man is to... uh, be head over an average woman. Uh, I'm saying average just because it's slightly different in the, in the church in that there's some sense in which Peter and Ron and I, uh, as elders, have some sort of uh, uh, leading, some sort of authority over um, women, as well as men, uh, women who are not our wives. Uh, we've got some sort of role there. It's obviously different to a marriage role. But just in general... Uh, women are not called to offer their submission to anyone but their own husband. Uh, so Michael is responsible before God to lead Roz, but he's not 
responsible to lead Elise or Jess or Leela, which I'm sure Michael is quite relieved about, that he's only responsible before God to lead his wife. So, so that's the, the marriage relationship. But what's all that got to do with church and to a whole lot of people who are not married at all? Well, verse 4, Paul turns to the issue itself when he talks about men who pray or prophesy should do it with their heads uncovered. And in verse 5, women who pray or prophesy uh, should do it with their heads covered. Uh, because if they don't, it dishonours her head. Now, as best we can work out, what happened in Paul's time was that uh, married women wore some sort of head covering in public. It might have been a scarf, it might have been a, a veil. Uh, and one of the things it showed was that they were under the headship of their husband. Uh, and when, when, when women didn't do that, it showed a disrespect to her husband. Or as verse 5 says, it dishonoured her head, uh, that is, her husband. And here's probably what was going on in the Corinthian church. Some women, they came to the front of the meeting, uh, they led the congregation in prayer or they, they got up to speak a word of prophecy and they took their head coverings off. Now why would they do that when they wore those head coverings at, uh, for the rest of the week? Well, one suggestion is it was pride. Uh, they thought they, uh, because they got to get up the front and they were prophesying and everybody was listening to what they were saying, that that meant they now had a position of authority and so even their husbands should start listening to them. Uh, another suggestion is to do with what they thought about Jesus' return, uh, that there would be no marriage in eternity, uh, there'd be no submission to husbands and so they'd just get a head start on, on this no marriage thing and uh, they would start by taking off the, uh, the sign of authority. And Paul says that sort of attitude... Uh, reflected in the action, is wrong. Uh, it sends a message that they don't like God's order. It sends a message they don't want to recognise their husband's authority over them. Uh, he calls it shameful, as if their heads were shaved, uh, which is probably what uh, one of the ways that adulterous women were treated in the culture, or if their hair was cut off. And so the problem is not the headgear. The problem is not what you wear or don't wear on, on your hair at all, but it's the attitude behind it. Uh, it's about the sinful pride. Uh, and this pride is something that Paul's been referring to all the way through the letter up to this point. Uh, the pride had practical consequences for relationships. Uh, for us today, the situation is the same. We don't have the same cultural symbols. We don't have veils and headscarves. They're not normal anymore but we're still called to reflect God's order. Uh, and in a way, the way we act and talk to each other should be about decency and submission and respect. Now, what does that mean for us? It might mean dressing modestly. If we're married, it might mean wearing a wedding ring. Uh, in terms of our behaviour, married people should be behaving and speaking in a way that shows they respect and value and honour their spouse. They shouldn't be criticising them in public. They shouldn't be putting them down. They, they shouldn't be making jokes about them. I think that might be another application for this, this general principle about showing respect and honour for your spouse. But, but let's make it even more general. Uh, let's stretch it out to how we treat all of uh, the members of our church. People we're not married to, we should be treating them with the same respect and honour 
Uh, we should treat each other with humility rather than with pride. We should value each person as important with something to contribute. That's the way God has put our church together. We should respect it. We should reflect it. Uh, we'll look at these ideas a bit more in the next few weeks because the Corinthians were getting them wrong in other areas, the same thing wrong in other areas as well. Uh, we see it next week when we look at the Lord's Supper and how they showed pride and uh, disrespect in the way they ate, uh, in the way they used spiritual gifts, in how they boasted about speaking in tongues. And the, and the root cause of the whole thing is a lack of love. And love is the key to the whole thing, and that's, uh, that's chapter 13. So, so this is not an issue that's sort of off by itself. It, it, it's part of a whole suite of, of problems that are caused by a lack of love and a lack of pride. So Paul's made his point. He talks about what uh, women should be doing. Uh, and then he goes on to back it up with some proofs. And uh, unfortunately, some of the proofs, rather than making things clear, perhaps make them slightly more complicated and less clear, but let, let's try and clear it up. Uh, he, he heads back to Adam and Eve and to Genesis 2 in verse 7. So have a look at verse 7. A man ought not to cover his head. Why? Since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Uh, for man did not come from woman, but woman from man, and neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Just thinking back to Adam and Eve, when Adam was made, he was made in God's image, made to represent God, to reflect God. Uh, and Paul says that makes him the glory of God. The one who brings glory to God, the one who ref visibly reflects God in some way by being his image. There's a sense in which that makes him the glory of God. I wonder if it's not also uh, man brings joy and satisfaction to God as well. Uh, that's the relationship between God and Adam. Paul then goes on to say Eve came second, uh, was made from Adam, created for Adam to be his helper, to be his friend, to, to fulfil and to complete him. Uh, he couldn't do the job of filling and caring for the earth himself. He needed uh, a partner. He needed a helper. Uh, and Paul says she was made to be the glory of man. And what does that mean? I think it means something like uh, Eve was made to bring him joy and companionship and satisfaction, to fulfil and to complete him. And so... That, that's, that's sort of the, the, the history statement. And verse 7, he says, Therefore what that means is men should have uncovered heads. Uh, and by so doing, they honour Jesus, who's their head. Uh, and women should, uh, for this reason, a woman should have a sign of authority on her head. Uh, and we sort of uh, equate that with the head covering a bit earlier in the chapter. So she should have a head covering. Uh, he adds a little detail about because of the angels, uh, which um, I've got a couple of ideas about. If you're really interested in that, uh, you can ask me afterwards. Uh, but just for the sake of time, we might sort of move through that. Uh, so Paul continues his argument uh, down in verse 11. The women weren't, uh, were uncovering their heads and that expressed the, the attitude that they didn't need their husbands anymore. And so Paul says in verse 11 uh, that the woman isn't independent of the man. Notice still it's singular. So we're still thinking uh, the, the marriage relationship of, 
of, uh, of wife and husband. Uh, but also, he says that uh, man is not independent of woman. Uh, just in case husbands thought being head meant that they were uh, independent and they didn't need the women. So verse 11, he says, In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Uh, He's described God's order. He's described how the church should reflect that. But now he wants to refine that and speak about the new order, about God's, Christ's new creation. Because when men and women are in the Lord, in other words, when they're Christian, then there's a mutual dependence. Headship and and submission are no excuse for pride or or feeling that you're independent. Uh, You're mutually dependent on each other. You're both part of the body. And so women who uh, took off their their veil, they were sending the message that they they didn't want to be dependent. They didn't want to be under uh, the headship of their husband. Uh, But that's not the way things should be when we're both in the Lord, when we're both joined to Jesus. The rest of the world treats submission and authority and headship in one way, but we're not to be like that in the church. Uh, Headship and submission doesn't need to be about independence or pride. Headship doesn't mean uh, the woman is independent. Uh, We're actually interdependent. Uh, We can't do without each other. We depend on each other. No one is better. No one is more important. Uh, We're different. Husbands have different roles to wives. Uh, Now, I think those of us who are married can agree with that. We depend on our spouse. Uh, They do things we can't. Uh, We complement each other. We fill in the gaps. Uh, And that works itself out in different ways with different couples. There's a mutual interdependence within marriage. Uh, But let's stretch it out. That works within the church as well. When a church is working well, we're interdependent. Uh, We work together. We depend on one another. Uh, Chapter 12 uh, sort of stretches that out when it uh, uses the metaphor of a body for the church. Uh, And each part of the body can't work without all of the others together. Uh, And that's, that's the reality. He finishes verse 12 by just reminding us that uh, we're all dependent on God. Well, he's coming to the end of his list of arguments. Verse 13, though, he, uh, he brings in another argument, uh, which, once again, is, is slightly confusing, but I think he's basically just saying, use your eyes, verse 13. Uh, don't they tell you it's only natural that women have got a built-in head covering? They've got long hair, as a general rule, whereas men don't. Judge for yourselves, verse 13, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with a head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. So he's talked about theology, he's talked about creation, he's talked about the new creation of the church, and then fourthly, he uses the argument that nature itself says it's a normal thing for women to have a natural covering of hair on their head. I think that's all it's saying, really. Uh, a beautiful head of hair is something to treasure and to rejoice in. I don't think he's saying all women need to have long hair. I don't think he's saying short hair is a bad thing. 
I think he's saying just a, as a general rule, women have long hair, men don't. So it's a normal sort of thing for women to have this head covering, whether it's a veil or whether it's just hair. Rejoice in it, don't cast it off. That's verse 14, 15. Verse 16, he, he gives us one final argument. Uh, convention. Every other church, the women wear head coverings. So, so just fit in, <laughs> verse 16. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. You're on your own. Uh, so just, just toe the line. Well, that's the passage. Uh, but I guess the big question is, what does it all mean for us? Uh, do we have to follow it literally? Some churches do that. Uh, the women all have long hair. They all wear scarves. Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. Uh, remember, we've been saying it's all about the principle of the heart rather than necessarily the, the, the practical implications of what you wear. So firstly, we should show God's order. I think that's the first principle. We should show God's order. Uh, God... God's design is that Christ is the head of the church and he set various things in place where some lead and some follow. We should show our submission to Christ by conforming to God's order. If we're married, God's design is that wives submit to husbands, that they recognise their husband's responsibility for them, that, wives, that husbands should lead, husbands should serve with Christ as the example. We should show that in public and visible ways, uh, not undermine, not criticise, but support and uh, encourage. So that's the background principle, but there are other principles, I think, to do, to do with church. Uh, principle number two, all God's people depend on each other. Men and women are interdependent. Uh, we complement, we fill in the gaps. Uh, some are good at one thing, others at other things. Uh, so... Uh, we shouldn't be proud just because we can do one thing better than other people. There should be a humility in the way we treat and uh, we work together. We need each other. Uh, flip that around. I think it means uh, don't think you have nothing to offer. Don't just hang back. Don't stay away from church. Don't uh, uh, refuse to volunteer because you think you have nothing to offer. Uh, we are all interdependent. That means you have something to offer. We'll think more about that in chapter 12 when we look at spiritual gifts. Nobody's useless. Uh, nobody is independent. Here's a third principle, uh, and we almost overlook it, don't we? All God's people can lead the church in prayer and prophecy. All God's people, women as well. Unfortunately, many churches have tried to solve the problem of men and women and who leads and, and who submits by stopping women from doing things up the front of church. But this is saying that the women were praying and prophesying, uh, leading the church in talking to God, leading the church in, in, in declaring what God had been teaching them. I think that's pretty close to a definition of what prophecy is, sharing what God's been teaching them. And so we need to make sure that women, as well as men, are given the opportunity to do those things, to lead us in prayer and prophecy, because men are not independent of women. So let's pray that God would give us the strength and the wisdom and the humility to be a church like that, uh, where God's people show God's order, where we humbly depend on one another, 
uh, and where we all pray and prophesy to build each other up. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, this is a difficult passage, uh, firstly difficult to understand and in some ways it's difficult to swallow and difficult to, to, um, to justify, I guess. Uh, but we pray that uh, you would give us the attitudes of Jesus in uh, how we relate to each other, that, that we would be humble, that we would seek to serve and seek to use our gifts and to build each other up. That, that, that there may not be this pride or this uh, sense of being independent from one another, but that in all things we might be joined to Jesus and joined to each other for his honour and glory. Amen.